about 150 years ago, right here in America, we had one of the most famous feuds uh, of all time between two families. One was called the Hatfields, and one was the McCoys. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of the Hatfields and the McCoys. Most of us have. It's kind of one of those things that's lodged in our consciousness as Americans. These two families, very large families, lived on opposite sides of the Big Sandy River that separated Kentucky from West Virginia, and they had it out for each other for years, years and years. And it was a, it was a feud that involved double-crossing, stealing, kidnapping, political mischief, bounty hunting, and even murder. Murder. Eventually, the Supreme Court stepped in and put several of the family members on trial and convicted them, sent them to prison for life over the things that they were doing to each other. Now, how did such a terrible feud like that get started? The, the bad blood existed for a long time. We're not really sure what started it, but things really escalated in, in the year 1878 when Randolph McCoy accused Floyd Hatfield of stealing one of his pigs. It all started over a missing pig. You know, human history is riddled with stories like this of families and tribes and religions and political parties who set themselves at odds and make enemies with each other. And the reasons for it, in the end, may be so silly that we wonder how something like that ever got started. Or they've been fighting for so long that they forget what even started it in the first place. They don't even know. They just know they hate each other. But whatever that is... It hasn't gone away, by the way. We haven't grown out of that as a culture. If, if anything, it's just as bad as it ever was. It's rooted in something that's natural to us. It's rooted in this natural desire that you and I both have to align ourselves with certain people to the exclusion of others. To align ourselves with certain people, they are our friends, our loved ones, our people, our party, and to make enemies of those who are different or those who uh, oppose us. Now, that can be something as big and bad as systemic racism. It can be something as immature as having cliques at school or at work. And it can be something as silly as a college football rivalry. All right? But I'm here to tell you guys, we have this defect, this sin within us. We all do, even if we don't recognize it in ourselves, this desire to align myself with people like me or people who will accept me, and therefore other people are on the outside. They're different. In fact, maybe they're even bad because they're not like us. And so that sin is in our hearts. And here in Matthew 5, Jesus Christ hits it head on. He comes on a collision course with this issue, and he addresses it in no uncertain terms. In, in, the, in the Sermon on the Mount, if you've been with us or if you follow our sermons on the website, here in Matthew chapter 5, and he'll do it again in chapter 6 and again in chapter 7, Jesus confronts us at the level of our heart sins. He doesn't just allow us to deal in the externals. He gets to issues of the heart. And it's like here in Matthew 5, if we, if we, as we've walked through it, it's like Jesus is pulling the curtain back on my sin. He will not allow it to go unexposed. He's going to deal with it. And the great thing about Matthew 5, I hope we've seen this, is that Jesus is not doing it to shame us and to, to destroy us. He's doing it in the effort to try to show us the true heart of God. This is what God is like. This is God's heart so that we then might come to reflect God rather than reflecting our own human nature. And so when Jesus says things that are offensive and difficult for us, it's ultimately for our good. But y'all today, I think, takes the cake. We've looked at issues like anger and lust, 
divorce, significant, painful issues. But today might be the, the most difficult. And I think it's possibly the most infamous thing Jesus ever said. You'll see why as we go. Over the course of time, you know, in the 2,000 or so years since Jesus first spoke these words, many, many, many people have walked away from him on these grounds because of this text. This is too much. Jesus has gone too far. He's asking me to cross a line that I simply cannot, I will not cross. You see it here in Matthew 5, verse 43. What's Jesus asking us to do in terms of how we respond to people who we either hate outright or simply people that we reject because they're different than us? Verse 43, Jesus speaks to his disciples. He's talking to us, the church. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, this is the sixth time in Matthew chapter 5, the sixth time that Jesus has employed this formula here. You've heard, but I say to you, here's the standard that you're living by, whether right or wrong, sometimes right, sometimes it's biblical, sometimes it's wrong, but I say to you now, I'm going to give you the deeper heart of God. And Jesus, this is the most interesting one too, because Jesus is quoting something here that is both right and wrong. He says, you've heard, love your enemy. Now that is an, an Old Testament command. It's given in Leviticus 19. I'm sorry, love your neighbor. You shall love your neighbor. Everybody knew that. That is God's word. And hate your enemy. Now the interesting thing about that second part is that that's not given to us in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible are God's people commanded to hate their enemies. So why is Jesus assuming that ethic? Because that was the ethic of his day that had developed naturally over time. Everybody knew they should love their neighbors. But think about how this would happen, and it makes total sense. The people of Israel, God's chosen people, they are meant to be a light to the world. The rest of the world is, in essence, pagan. They don't worship God. Israel, God's people, they know and love the one true God, and they are meant to show what God is like to the rest of the world, right? So there's a clear distinction there. And so love your neighbor. What does that mean? Well, they came to understand that is love your fellow Israelite, love your fellow Jew. And everybody else, by definition, can't be my neighbor. Everybody else is outside. Everybody else opposes the things that we are for, and they are for the things that we oppose, and therefore they can't be our neighbors. And so we shouldn't love them in the same way that we love each other. And of course, that difference hardened over time and became outright hate. We hate them for what they stand for, what they do, and who they are. And imagine this, that in the time of Jesus, when the people of Israel were under Roman rule, the dominant Roman empire was established above and over the, uh, the Jews, that they certainly didn't see the Romans as their neighbors, because the Romans were the oppressors. Those who did not love and honor God, those who worshiped pagan deities, they are not our neighbors, they are against us, and therefore we hate them, and it's a righteous hatred. We're right to do it. You see how that would have easily developed? It's a natural conclusion. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy, right? But, verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemy. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Uh, right here, Jesus, he gives us a command, the result of the command, and then the purpose, the reason. Command, result, and purpose, okay? And, and so what's the command? He says, love your enemies 
Pray for those who persecute you. Earlier in chapter 5, Jesus acknowledges that we have enemies. It may seem like a strange idea to us. Jesus had no problem with this bare fact. We have enemies. We have people who are against us. He said, blessed are you when men insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things against you falsely on account of me. You're blessed. Last week we saw this, the, the, the text that precedes this one, Jesus said that if someone slaps you, if someone sues you, if someone forces you and pushes you around, be prepared for that. Be prepared to return a blessing instead. Jesus assumes that as their reality. They have enemies. But Jesus says, here's how you treat them. Here's how you respond. You can't control what they do to you, but you can control how you respond. And Jesus says right here, you do opposite. You do opposite what your enemy expects. You do opposite what your nature demands. And you do opposite what the world understands as normal, right? Your enemy wants you to retaliate. Your nature wants to retaliate. The world expects us to retaliate. Jesus says, do the opposite in every case. Love them. Love them and pray for their good. Pray for those who hate you, that God would save them, that God would be gracious to them. Those who harm you, those who threaten you, those who slander your name, those who disagree with you, those who look different from you. Jesus says, love them, and that's an active verb. That's meant to be something that we don't just feel abstractly, but we love and we pray for their good. We want good things to happen to them. And so that's the command. That's hard enough as it is. But look at the result. You see the result in verse 45? So that, Jesus says, you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. In other words, we show the world our kinship with God when we love the way that God loves. You prove, in some sense, you prove that you are a child of God, that you belong to him and that your heart's being transformed by him by the way you love, not those who are easy to love, but by loving those who are tough to love, those who are difficult to love. We show the heart of God. It's one of the most stark indicators of what it really means to be a Christian. Anybody in our culture, certainly anybody can claim to be a Christian. There's no cost associated with that. If anything, at least in the Bible Belt, it's typically there's advantage with claiming to be a Christian. But Jesus is saying, listen, I don't, regardless of what we say or what label we carry, one of the greatest indicators of that genuine faith is how do I love people who are unlovable? Because that is what, in a sense, proves my sonship, my kinship to God. And then Jesus gives us the reason, right? There's a command, there's a result, and there's a reason for this kind of love. He says in verse 45, for God causes his son, S-U-N, his son, to rise on the evil and the good, on both. And God sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. How does God treat evil and unrighteous people? This, is, this would have been, now you, may, you know, we, we all, love is the primary characteristic of God uh, for most of us, and, and with good reason. But for the hearers originally in Jesus' time, this idea that God loves and is kind toward evil people would have been absolutely a radical idea, that God would love them and care for them, that he would ri- raise his son up on the good and the bad, that he would send rain for the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, Jesus is not making a statement about weather here. These are simply examples. Jesus is making a statement about grace, that God gives grace to those who deserve it in some sense and to those who don't. 
And the point here is that Jesus is saying even the worst offenders, think about this, even the worst of people are constantly receiving the good gifts of God and the grace of God in abundance. You think about all the, all the graces of God that are common to us, that are not unique, but they're just common. Jesus mentions two of them, sunshine and rain. You think about friendship, you think about life and breath, relationships, all the, all the wonderful gifts that God gives us to enjoy, and he, gives, he, he shows no discrimination in that that both good people and evil people receive the same, in a sense, favor from God as an act of his love. And you see why Jesus would call us to love our enemies, because that's, it's not just that it's a practical thing. In fact, it's probably not very practical at all. Jesus doesn't say, here's the practical reward for you if you do it. He didn't give us one. He simply says, you get to reflect in that case like a mirror. You get to reflect to the world what God is like. This is the heart of God. God loves those who don't deserve it. God loves people who want nothing to do with him. He gives grace to them in the same way that he does to us. It's called common grace, something that everybody receives simply because they're made in God's image, certainly when they don't deserve it. God loves them. Now, Jesus is going to press us here, okay? This, this, what we just read is hard. It's difficult. But Jesus is going to press a little further, and he needs to. Okay? And here's why. I, I have this temptation. I don't know if you're like me. I have this temptation to think. I look at this. Love your enemies. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I love everybody. This isn't a problem for me. I don't hate anybody. I mean, hate? Really? I don't, I don't hate anybody. Um, that is probably the good religious thing to kind of say and feel. Maybe even the good southern thing to say, you know. Man, man I love everybody. No, Kyle, you do not. And we need, I need to hear that very loud and clear here. If I try to throw a blanket on this and say, oh, yeah, you know, this isn't a problem for me. I love everybody. No, I don't. And there's no use in pretending. And Jesus is going to show me. He's going to prove it to me right here in verse 46. Jesus squeezes us into the corner right here by showing us that it's not just an abstract thing. Look at this. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do that? If you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than others? Don't even the Gentiles do that? It, it may not be obvious at first glance, but Jesus is really turning the screws on us right here. Because to the Jewish people, the, the people in, in Matthew 5 listening to Jesus, these were Jewish people. And to the Jewish people of Jesus' day, there was nothing more despicable than to be a tax collector. Tax collectors were considered thieves and traitors. It was the lowest rung of the ladder. And just as bad for them was to be a Gentile, to be a Roman, because these were not only the oppressors, but they were pagans who didn't know God. They were unclean people. That's, that was the Jewish perspective. And so Jesus is making a massive statement right here. He says, if you only love people who love you back, if you greet and honor only the people who are just like you, then you're no different from the people that you despise the most. You're no different. You're just like them. There's nothing special about that kind of love, Jesus says. For the sake of shock value, this would have been a shocking statement. It's not as shocking to us, maybe in, in, in our time and place. But if Jesus were to say something like, you know, even terrorists love other terrorists, we would understand that. That even evil people like being treated kindly. Even evil people love other evil people, right? There's nothing unique or good 
about that kind of love. There's nothing godly about that kind of love. Jesus says, you want a gold star for that? You don't get a reward for that. We're just acting like everybody else. We're doing what's natural to us. We're loving those who love us back. But Jesus is calling us not to something natural. He's calling us to something supernatural, right? He's calling us to love people who are not lovable. If they don't love us back, we're meant, we're meant to love them all the more and pray for their good all the more. Let, let me, let me, I'm going I'm to try to give us a little bit of application here, okay? Uh, we could, I mean, there are a thousand different ways to apply this, and I trust that God in his spirit will give you application here, okay? But let's think one, let's give one application very broadly and then get a little more personal on this. If you love those who love you back, you're nothing special. You're just like everybody else. If you greet and honor only those who are just like you, you get no reward, Jesus says, right? Um, okay, so think about this very broadly, I, and I, I don't have to preach on this as if I've got to convince you of it. Y'all, we live in a time and place right now, socially and politically, it's just mean, all right? It's just mean out there. And, uh, and, and we're, we, we're not going to get the toothpaste back in the tube, okay, on this one. It's not going to get better. If anything, it's going to get worse. The, the spirit of meanness and anger in our time, okay? Now, should Christians have social and political opinions and, and, and uh, stances? Yes, sure. Some of them are, are, are extraordinarily important uh, in terms of how we live out our faith, right? We should care, but what happens when we, when we Christians get sucked into the vortex of meanness? You know what happens? You do know what happens because you've seen it. Maybe you've actually acted it out. Sometimes we're guilty of that too. We get sucked into the vortex and we take people who disagree with us and we make them into targets. We turn them into our enemies. They're different than us. They disagree with us. They stand on a different side of the aisle than we do. And so because they oppose what we believe, we vilify them. We assume the worst about them and we say mean things on the internet. A lot of mean things on the internet, all right? Um, the Apostle James said, with the same tongue, we both bless our God and Father and curse people who are made in his image. James says, these things ought not to be, that the same spring cannot produce both fresh water and bitter water, that when we speak, we should speak with grace, right? And so the answer here, when we talk about just the, the social political climate, the answer here is not, well, we Christians just shouldn't care about stuff like that. We shouldn't, we shouldn't have beliefs about issues that are considered political issues. That's not the answer. The answer is what Jesus tells us to do in Matthew 5. The answer is to love our enemies, right? To assume that we have people who oppose what we are for and they're for what we oppose. That's just the bare fact of reality. But love them, Jesus says. Love those who oppose your convictions in such a way that you can disagree with grace and truth. You don't have to sacrifice truth. You can still stand on what's true, but you have to interject grace as a primary uh, thing. That's got to be the thing that turns the gears. That's got to be the, things that, the thing that makes us who we are as the definable characteristic of our life, not just truth and what we believe, but grace. We cannot condescend into hatred. Y'all know that's what meanness means. The, the word mean is a mathematic term. It means average. That when we act mean toward other people, we're, we're acting just like everybody else. And that is not what it means to be a child of God. Okay? Love your enemies, even on the internet. Right? Love your enemies. Um, and I'll just say, practically, this journey from seeing people as our enemies 
to growing into love for them. This is not a momentary flip the switch kind of thing. This takes time. Can I just ask you, if, if, this, is a, if, if this is especially difficult for you, and it's going to take time for you to grow into a loving person, I just, let me just encourage you to stay off the internet until you get there, all right? Don't put yourself in environments where it's easy to lash out and get sucked back into the vortex, all right? Keep your mouth shut until you have something gracious to, to offer, all right? The world needs grace, not just truth. The world needs grace. That's how we've got to live. Now, let's think about a little bit more personal application, okay? Because that you say, well, I mean, that's not a problem for me, okay? Um, think about someone you know. This is, this is going to sting to do it. But think about somebody that you know that's hurt you. And if you need to close your eyes to picture them in your mind, that's okay. Think about somebody who's hurt you, someone that you perceive as being against you, someone who opposes what you're for or they're for what you oppose, somebody that you're, uh, that you're jealous of, that you feel wronged by, somebody who got a promotion instead of you. Think about somebody that if you were just flatly honest in this room, if you were just honest toward your own heart, you would say, I don't love this person. I'm not inclined to pray for this person. Okay? I mean, think about somebody like that in your life. This person has not loved you well, so why should you love them? This person doesn't deserve grace. They don't deserve your prayer, so why should you pray for them, right? These are the things that we tell ourselves. Why should you seek this person's good? They didn't seek your good. They didn't care about you. They're not interested in relationship with you. Why should you care, right? Y'all, this is where our faith takes flight. This is where our faith takes flight. Remember, it's one thing to say I'm a Christian, right? That's, there's no cost involved in that. But to actually experience a faith that transforms our heart, this is going to sound kooky, but we ought to praise God for our enemies. You ought to praise God for your enemies because now your life has a proving ground for what Jesus is talking to us about today. Now there's a, it's not just theoretical. Yeah, I love everybody. No, you don't. You have people in your life that you do not pray for and you will not pray for because of what they've done to you or how you perceive them. Here's the proving ground. We have enemies. We have people that we have set ourselves against. And now we have an opportunity to experience the true transforming work of God in our hearts, the the work of God that changes us from enemies to friends, to those who love and pray, something so unnatural to us. But by grace, it can happen. How does it happen? How do we make this transition? Let me show you from Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Um... This is something uh, that God does not tell us to do, and then he walks away to take, you know, kind of an eagle-eye view and laugh at us as we stumble through it. This is something that God calls us to do because it's his heart, and I'll prove it to you. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church about how God loves us. Listen to this. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by Jesus' blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. I hope you caught that. This massive statement that Paul is making right here. Paul is saying, uh, without any reservation, listen, God has enemies. God has his share 
of enemies. And what's more than that, these enemies have names. You know what God's enemies are named? Kyle. Jean. Jennifer. Jay. Karen. Craig. Angie. Jesse. What the scripture calls us to recognize is that we were not good people with good intentions and good potential, and God looked upon us and his face beamed because, oh man, if I could just have Kyle on my team, what could I be capable of doing in this world? That's not how God functions, and that's not how he found us. That when God looks upon us, the scripture says that we were enemies, his enemies. Well, I thought God loved everybody. What's that all about? Yeah, God does love everybody, but we have not loved him. We have not loved God as God deserves. We have not loved and honored and obeyed God as God deserves. And so we set ourselves, in our sin, we set ourselves up against God as his enemies. We made that decision. And so God has enemies, and it's me. And in our sin, we created a gulf, a gap between God and us that otherwise could never be crossed. That's a hard truth for religious people like me to stomach. I don't like to think of myself as that bad or that far from God, and yet that's what the Scripture says is true. And if we're willing to believe it, y'all, as hard as it is, if we're willing to believe it, it actually will liberate you. It will actually set you free. It will change your life. Because we only looked at one little part of that Scripture just now. We were enemies of God. Isn't that terrible? But what did God do to his enemies? How does that whole verse read? For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Y'all, God created a world, a perfect world, Genesis 1. He created a perfect world. And in that world, he set creatures who reflect him, that we are made in his own image. We are precious in his sight. And he gave us glory that we didn't deserve. He just bestowed it upon us, only to watch as we turned and rejected him. Adam and Eve got the ball rolling, but you know what? We don't need any help. We'd have done it too. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And God created this wonderful, precious world full of his, his creatures who embody his image. And we turned and basically spit in his face. We made, him our, 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 we made him our enemy. Martin Luther said, If the world had treated me the way it has treated God, I would have kicked the vile, wretched thing to pieces. But what did God do? God looked upon a world of sinners, a world of those who had made his, themselves his enemies, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loved us through that enmity, through our sin, enough that he would send his own son on our behalf. And so, y'all, when we think about the cross of Jesus Christ, at the cross, you've got a holy God suffering for unholy people. It makes no sense. It's completely illogical. None of us would have made that decision if we were in God's shoes somehow. But that's the love of God. At the cross, we have a perfect man dying for absolutely imperfect people. At the cross, we have a Savior crying out concerning his own enemies. Father, forgive them. He, ple- he, ple- he was pleading for their forgiveness as he bled out on the cross. Can you believe it? That's the love of God toward even his own enemies. And so, y'all, listen, we don't, we don't walk around pretending like this kind of love is easy. You'll never hear me say that. You'll never hear some sort of formulaic response. A plus B equals C. Just go love your enemies. Come on, y'all, get after it. We don't pretend like it's that easy because it's not. But it wasn't easy for God. 
It was costly for God. It cost him the very life of his own son sent on our behalf. But listen, if Jesus came to earth, if he left glory and came to earth specifically to pursue and love and rescue and save his enemies, then we have to acknowledge that as Jesus' followers, we have a fighter's chance here to do the same. Not just because Jesus gives us a good example to follow and we should try really hard to be like him, but that Jesus actually embodies that kind of love for you. That you were his enemy, but now you are his child. That you were God's enemy, but now you're his precious son or his precious daughter because Jesus Christ loved you while you were yet still far away. In Christ, we now have the capacity to do this because it's been done for us. Because it's been done for you. You notice how Jesus finishes this this chapter, the last thing he says. Therefore, in conclusion, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Uh, Y'all, that's not a statement of moral perfection. Okay, rest easy. That's not a statement of moral perfection. That's a statement of perfect love. That's the context here. It's perfect love. Jesus says the bar for God's children and how we love others, especially those who don't deserve it, the bar is set at the heart of God. We don't get to condescend into what's natural and normal and easier, into what's expected. We don't get to be at the mean, the average, right? The bar is set at the heart of God. And here's how God loves. Jesus has just told us. God loves without discrimination, right? Can you love as perfectly as God loves in terms of quality? No, But can you love like God loves in the sense that he loves both the evil and the good? In Christ, we can. Can you love people who are not like you, people who are different from you, people who've harmed you? In Christ, we can. In that sense, we show the world a perfect love, a love that cannot fit into categories, a love that can't be defined from the world's perspective because what the world expects, what our enemy desires, what our nature demands, Jesus says you can do opposite because you have experienced a love through his death and resurrection that, that pierces through the, sin, the, sin for, the sinner's heart and allows us to love as God loves. So we have a unique ability. We have a unique ability. It's not easy. It's not a light switch. It will not happen overnight. You will not wake up tomorrow morning and somehow you're just different in this regard. It takes time But we have because of Christ, because of him, because of his love for his enemies, that's us, made us into his children, we can love others who are not like us. We can pray sincerely for their good. We can. Because we ourselves were enemies who were not condemned, who were not kicked to the curb and sent away. We were enemies who instead were loved and pursued and redeemed. This is the uniqueness of Christian love. That we can reflect what we've been given to a world that desperately, desperately needs it. Let's pray for that kind of love together. <clears throat> Father, I, I, I pray for myself and I pray on behalf of those who are, who are seated in this room right now. Help us, Lord, to acknowledge that this is outrageously difficult. This is so utterly unnatural. Let us just acknowledge that. Let's admit it. None of us left to ourselves want this. It makes no sense to us. This does not balance the scales. This does not even the score. And yet, Jesus Christ, you you did not give us an ethic 
to just see how we would flounder our way through it. You lived it. You laid down your life for us, Lord, while we were your enemies, while we were sinners. You laid it down that you might show the extent of your love for us and make us totally forgiven and pure, sanctified, free. No longer enemies, but children of God forever. And so, Father, would you this morning, would you, like, would you so deeply pierce that message into our hearts that, Lord, our lesser sinful desires to hate, that those desires, Lord, would have no place to hide, that, Lord, you would shine a light into the darkness of my heart, Lord, where I like to, to harbor bitterness. I like to assume the worst about people. I like to gossip. I like to set myself against others. Father, would you leave that, that's, that garbage, would you leave it no room to hide this morning in the pure light of your truth and your grace? Make us different. Lord, don't let us settle for the mean. We are not average. We are children of the living God. And so, Father, if the grace of Jesus Christ can save us, then I pray also, Lord, that we'd find it this morning, Lord, to transform us, to change us. What would, what would our community look like if we, Lord, did not return evil for evil, but a blessing instead? If we actively loved people who look and act nothing like us, who believe nothing like us, who want nothing to do with us, Father, let it begin with us that we would begin to pray now for the genuine good, the salvation and the blessing of people, Lord, that we are not inclined to love. Father, don't let us skim the surface here and just love our friends and family and think that somehow we're doing it. Father, get, tra transcend what's normal and natural. And Lord, give us a heart that's like yours. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.